This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I know it when I see it. An it girl, that is. The it girl is one of fashion's most enduring, if elusive, figures. Everybody knows what it is, but no one can really define it. Here are two attempts. The it factor lives in the girl who doesn't know she's beautiful, who's utterly without self-consciousness or pretense. That's from the 1920s, from British writer Eleanor Glynn. Then there's the it girl with a street-smart style and down-low attitude. That's how novelist Jay McInerney famously described actor Chloe Sevigny, maybe the 90s' first real it girl. At the beginning of the 1990s, the supermodels were larger than life, still the faces of fashion. But as the decade moved on, a new set of cool girls slowly started drawing everyone's eyes off the runway and to the front row of the show. They were the socialites, the starlets. They were the girls who knew how to dress as well on the street as they did in the movies. They sold us glamour and Hollywood, and we bought it. By the end of the 90s, Hollywood's it girls were modelling high fashion for the masses on television, the movies, and under a new kind of spotlight, the red carpet. And a Vogue cover girl was as likely to be an it girl as a supermodel. They became the walking symbols of 90s fashion's most coveted ideals, for better and for worse. They were cool, pretty, famous, but most importantly, they were it. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. We've always seen women in the public eye who've captivated the interest of the world, particularly the world of Vogue, through their style, through the kind of relationships and the friendships they had, through the kind of the world that they moved in. As Vogue's fashion news editor Mark Holgate notes, beautiful, glamorous it girls have commanded attention and power for centuries. The French queen, Marie Antoinette, known for her passion for fashion, and her English counterpart and friend, Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, might have been the first real it-girls of the late 18th century. But in modern times, the term it-girl itself came into style in the 1920s. 1926. Clara Bow is chosen as the it-girl and shoots to stardom. The actress Clara Bow, the epitome of aspirational, ineffable cool with a dash of sex appeal. You know, you saw them just kind of move through the socialites of the 40s, the kind of it girls of the Warhol factory in the 60s, like Edie Sedgwick. And then you, suddenly you fast forward to the 90s. The it girls were really 
these Park Avenue princesses, I think. I think they were the sort of core of it at the beginning. Author Plum Sykes joined Vogue as a writer in the 1990s, chronicling the fast-changing social world. It was a combination of natural beauty, social status, and then a last name that was a brand, like a Lauder or, you know, the Boardmans or the Grease or whatever. That was the sort of ingredients for one kind of it girl. Glamorous socialites like Erin Lauder or Carolyn Bassett Kennedy were born or married into it, you might say. But then, in 1994, another kind of it hit. This kind of cooler downtown, you know, lower Manhattan it girl, which was the sort of Chloe Sevigny, Kate Moss, but, you know, that downtown it girl was also the counterpoint and just as cool. 19-year-old Chloe Sevigny had been featured in a Sonic Youth video, had modelled for Kim Gordon's clothing line, X-Girl, and had just been cast in the Larry Clark film, Kids. As the writer Jay McInerney chronicled in The New Yorker that year, Chloe knew the history of high fashion, but dressed mostly in vintage DIY looks. Every girl in New York City wanted to be her. But Chloe seemed to be above the attention, which made her even cooler. And soon, the downtown scene, in which Chloe played such a key role, became a hub where cool girls mixed high fashion and low, created their own lines, and served as inspiration to designers like Marc Jacobs and Anna Sui. I met Marc Jacobs and Anna Sui around that time. I don't remember. We were always talking about how did we actually meet, because it was kind of a blur. Sophia Coppola had always been interested in fashion. The daughter of iconic film director Francis Ford Coppola, Sophia snagged an internship at Chanel at 15. But it was in the lower Manhattan club and fashion scene that she became known for her clothes, her friends, and the youthful, artistic energy that radiated around them. I remember New York at that time that Fashion Week and the MTV Awards and Halloween were all at the same time. So my friends and I would try to somehow get out to New York for that moment in October because it was a mix of all this kind of exciting time in around fashion in New York and Michelle Hicks had a famous Halloween party that y'all and everyone would get dressed up for and the models would get dressed up for and it was really fun and we have we have old videos of us doing our makeup and getting ready to go so it was just something that was so you know different than normal life in California. And as the uptown fashion world and the downtown cool kid scenes began to merge, all eyes were on the most stylish young women from all over the city, dashing from party to runway show to party, living a life most people could only ever dream of. It's being that the most popular, the most beautiful, the best clothes, and often they were very, very rich. They were the equivalent of the Instagram influencers of now. Plum Sykes again. They were like a cast of characters on a TV show. So if you imagine the set was New York and the characters were the Aaron Lauders and the Carolyn Bessettes and then there were the journalists around them and the magazines around them, which was the sort of theatre that they played out in. And as in any theatre, what the girls were wearing was incredibly important. Especially because, in addition to their cool and breezy attitudes, the It Girl style also exuded a sense of authenticity. As much as they had the clothes and the fashion themselves, they were able to access, you know, samples and next season's shoe and next season's bag and whatever it is, and they, they, could, they could dress the part 
as much as be the part. I think the designers saw those girls as being as important as like a Hollywood celebrity because in a way they had more intrinsic style. They hadn't been styled by someone. More and more, designers were learning the power that these it girls wielded and the ways that they could drive business. Case in point, the it bag. There's a waiting list. I assumed. Five years. For a bag? It's not a bag. It's a Birkin. It girls have the it bags and the it bags belong to the it girls. And then the designers who were really savvy going back, you know, decades, made an it bag for an it girl who they picked. I remember my first Gucci purse because I begged my grandmother for it. Actress Nia Long. I was like, Nana, please. And she could not believe how much it cost. And it was like the smallest Gucci purse available, but I had my Gucci purse. The image of an it girl gliding through the city with her it bag was one that consumers latched onto. The aspirational, out-of-reach life of the most chic women alive became a little more accessible through a clutch or a pocketbook. And designers and brands took note. If you could get Kate Moss to carry your bag, because she was the ultimate it girl. I mean, she was the icon. I interviewed her a few times actually for Vogue and she had incredible style. You know, when she carried that Balenciaga bag, which was called, I think it was called the city bag. So when she carried that bag, which was kind of messy with zips and tassels, and it was kind of a little bit rock and roll, suddenly the Balenciaga bag became a knit bag. It's that kind of alchemy of fashion when everything falls into place at the same time. You can sell a zippy, cool rock and roll bag to anyone of any size. So you could be selling your product far more widely if you could encapsulate it in a little bag that doesn't have any size. You don't have to be tall. You don't have to be modelly to wear it. Anyone can carry a city bag and look like Kate Moss. As the It Girls were showing women around the world how fashion could signal glamour, ease and cool in the real world, they were becoming celebrities in their own right. One way you can track their eyes, look at the pages and the covers of Vogue. Sofia Coppola, for example, was embraced by the fashion world and was photographed for the cover of Vogue Italia by Stephen Meisel in 1992. That meant a lot to me because it was right after The Godfather 3 had come out and I had been just totally ripped apart of having ruined that movie. And then for Stephen to take these kind of elegant classic photos and, and, and be really embraced by the fashion world meant a lot to me after being totally rejected by, you know, the movie world. And I felt like I had my people that I connected with. Increasingly, the fashion world was realizing that the fame and beauty of these young women were a boon to brands. Fame and beauty were always potent forces for fashion, but the it girls were more than that. They were the embodiments of the lifestyle. Anna put Gwyneth Paltrow on the August 1996 cover and suddenly the supermodels, as they'd come to be known, were eclipsed. A new generation of talented performers, Gwyneth Paltrow, Julia Roberts, Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Nicole Kidman, Michelle Pfeiffer, Kim Basinger, Renee Zellweger, Sharon Stone among them, were embracing fashion, an association that previous generations of actors had been conditioned to think would somehow demean their talent and achievements. And the magazine industry, as well as the big brands and designers, 
realised the extraordinary traction that these globally recognised faces could bring to their publications, products and work. It brought the worlds of Hollywood and high fashion together and it sold magazines. We can chart the ascendancy of the importance of celebrity in fashion by looking at Vogue covers. Vogue archive editor Laird Borelli Person. In 1990, all but one of the 12 covers featured models. It's a little bit strange to say they're not celebrities because this was also the decade of the supermodel and they were celebrities in their own right, but they had their own genre. 1991, we have two actors, 92, two performers. Same for 93, except there's a Princess Diana cover as well. Two actors for 94, two actors among the 12 covers for 95, four for 96, seven for 98. So we have a big jump there. Back down to four for 99. And the first year that Vogue had 12 non-model covers was 2003. Suddenly, some of the most famous women in the world were smiling out from the covers of Vogue and talked high fashion within its pages. Elizabeth Hurley's first US Vogue cover in 1998 meant her first bikini shoot. I'd actually never been photographed in swimwear before, and I was like, oh, crikey. You know, I was hoping I'd be in a glamorous ball gown or something, and they said, bikinis on the beach. And I was just... I was like, well, I'm not going to turn it down because it's Vogue, but oh my God, bikinis. The celebrity could transfix audiences in a moving picture or in a still shot. But as Vogue's sustainability editor, Tony Goodman, notes, the most important thing was that celebrity would sell. All of a sudden, the celebrity was wanted on the cover more than the model. Because when you saw a newsstand and you saw a model, the, the fashion flock would pick up that magazine. When you had a celebrity on there that was promoting a film, like Star Wars or something, then you had a whole other audience that wanted to see what was going on inside that magazine. So you doubled your money right away. The rise of the celebrity It Girl meant that fashion and Hollywood were becoming more closely aligned than ever. As they merged together, the fashion world helped change what it meant to be a celebrity. And in turn, the celebrities changed fashion. More after the break. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes. it's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. 
But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As movie stars were snagging magazine covers, the fashion worn by the It Girls of 90s films and television became just as iconic. Angela Bassett stunned as Tina Turner in What's Love Got to Do With It, wearing one of Tina's original pieces. She bought me some of her own items and she went into her storage unit and offered me during a Disco Inferno one of her costumes. It was this red sort of one piece with French, you know, Disco Inferno. Andy McDowell was shifting her career from modelling to acting. And her look in Groundhog Day was a deliberate step back from that model-esque glamour in service of the story. I just think of that vest. I wore that vest. (laughs) That pink vest. And I loved my clothes on that because they were so sweet. We had hand-knitted sweaters that were just super country, but that was the spirit of the movie. On television, characters like Melissa Joan Hart's Clarissa Explains It All were subtly encouraging young girls to take their own fashion risks. The costumes that Clarissa wore really spoke to them. I had a lot of parents yell at me about You know, my kid ripped her jeans. Thanks a lot. I spent a lot of money on those. The 90s gave the younger girls, Tia and Tamara Mori, who exploded onto the scene in 1994 with their bright colours and eccentric style, their own forum. She was very vibrant, you know, very energetic, loud, funny, fun to be with. So her colours in her clothes had to reflect that. She was a trendsetter. Then there were shows that had the It Girl persona to go with their character's It Girl style. Take Jenny Garth's character, Kelly Taylor. She did a lot of spandex layered looks and scrunch socks and blazers and a lot of floral prints, but she always sort of had it all pulled together. There were the Banks sisters of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, played by Karen Parsons and Tatiana Ali. She's like that kind of girl, everything's all matchy. But looking back at it, that was actually what was kind of fun about Hillary. It was like of the moment, like, you know, Madonna was doing that and Janet and Selena. And it was just like, you know, as a kid, I was just like, yeah, I get to be like them. Claire Danes brought grunge to the suburbs in My So-Called Life. I would never dye my hair red. It's not red. It's crimson glow. It was flannel, everything, which obviously came from Seattle originally, but yes, caught like wildfire, so to speak. And of course, there was Cher, the character immortalized by Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, who introduced young women to some of 90s fashion's most iconic signature styles. What the hell is that? A dress. Says who? Calvin Klein. 
And while the younger IT girls were getting a generation of teenagers into fashion clothes, a more grown-up group of high-fashion TV IT girls were translating their tastes for mainstream comedy. The original fashion sitcom queen of the 90s, Fran Drescher, and her stylist, Brenda Cooper. We would do like three-hour wardrobe sessions. Brenda has this whole thing with starting with a silhouette. It was exciting, it was fun, it was pushing the envelope. And Grace Adler's blend of fashion and comedy. Grace, sweetie, what's that? Brought to life by Deborah Messing on Will and Grace. It's a hat, Karen. I didn't have time to dry my hair. So what what are you saying, honey? It's going to stay on all day? We have to, you know, look out for trends that are visual jokes as well. Things that other characters can comment on in order to make fun of the character. But nothing then, or even now, could compare to Sex and the City. Now, about the shoes. Hold on. <laughs> I think it was obvious that these women were women who were kind of talked about on the socialite pages and, you know, in the vogue, like, you know, who wore it best or who wore it when or whatever, you know what I'm saying. Kristen Davis, of course, played Charlotte, a member of one of the most famous foursomes since the Beatles. Along with lead actress Sarah Jessica Parker and her co-stars Kim Cattrall and Cynthia Nixon, as well as, crucially, stylist Patricia Field, Kristen took fashion on television to levels no one had even imagined before. Later that week, I had a religious experience at Manolo Blahnik. I think the show also promoted the idea of it items and the covetableness and the fantasy life of you know, someone that could have a walk-in closet as big as most people's apartment and fill it with Manolo's. Sex in the City and Sarah Jessica Parker's role of Carrie was quite it girl-esque in a way. Mark Holgate, Vogue's fashion news director. It was a somewhat kind of charmed, holly-go-lightly life of, of fabulous clothes and parties and boyfriends and sex talk and art world openings all rolled into one. Sarah Jessica, by the way, who's a really good friend of mine, but she was part of everything. She was like, chose the wallpaper for every set. She was like in every pie of that show. Kristen Johnson was in just one episode of Sex and the City, but it was one of the series' most iconic. Her character, Lexi, loudly declares o New York City to be over, e then promptly what falls out of a window. So bored, I could die. And she came to my fitting, and you know, it was like, no, not that dress, that dress. Of course, the dress I wanted to wear, which was a little more forgiving, they didn't want. So she, I put on that purple skin tight thing, and she was like, that's it. And I was like, oh. So Sarah had had these lofty ideas and creative ideas and and you know just in terms of even like the hair and makeup people that we hired you know she was always thinking out of the box because her fear was that we would look like every other tv show and that that would be wrong for these women so she's really the driving force between making that leap from a regular tv show to what we then became and part of that was her bringing on pat once we got picked up to series and it was a not an easily accessible, but a more accessible way in into participating with the the fantasies and the stories the brands were telling. While audiences around the world were absorbing New York it girl fantasy, 
In Hollywood, the world could see what those It Girls really wore for their actual fantastic lives on the red carpet. Is this Armani? What, you always red carpets, just like the cultural figure of the It Girl, weren't new. But at the beginning of the 1990s, they also weren't important. There were no paparazzi, no red carpet interviews, no TMZ. And for most events, celebrities simply wore what they wanted to wear. You would, like, go to Nordstrom, get a dress, and uh, do your own hair and makeup and show up to the thing. And I guess over the course of the 90s, late 90s aughts, it started to become, like, its own medium and its own industry. Joan and Melissa happened. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. Look at this. I for you, Joan. Joan and Melissa became known for their humor, their big personalities, and most importantly, a very specific question. Oh, Who are you wearing? Um, this is Ashley. You want to see all the best designers on all the most beautiful women in one place? You watch the red carpets. Neither the designers or the celebrities could predict the power of the red carpet moment. It happened organically. In 1994, for instance, Elizabeth Hurley was set to accompany Hugh Grant to the premiere of his new film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it was then that Hugh Grant asked Donatella Versace to dress his girlfriend, Liz. Yeah, I hadn't heard of Versace before that night. I, I had no fashion connections or that much interest other than thinking things were pretty. Oh, my God. <laughs> we didn't know Elizabeth Hurley at all. We know Hugh Grant, and we did a suit for him for, for the premiere of the movie. And we said, by the way, can you dress my girlfriend? It was, like, late. He's supposed to go out at, like, 6 o'clock. It was in the morning, like, at 9 o'clock. So me and Janet said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we don't have time to embroider anything. We don't have time. Donatella and Gianni scrambled to pull something together, and they didn't have much time so they had to improvise on the cut and construction. So he took all the safety pins and put on a mannequin and said, this all should be the dress. I said, Jan, you're crazy. She's never going to wear the dress. But a Versace dress with a sleek cut held together with gold safety pins and barely containing Hurley's fabulous figure captured an audience. She wore, she became Elizabeth Harry. And then after that, suddenly I started being photographed and I started being sent things. The darlings of the British film industry, Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley. From that appearance in that dress, Elizabeth Hurley almost instantly became an it girl and single-handedly made all the other girls rise to the occasion. The girls went from wearing their favourite clothes to designer gowns. And in 1997, the girls went couture when John Galliano dressed Nicole Kidman in a gown from his debut Christian Dior haute couture collection that created a benchmark for how high high fashion can go on the red carpet. The chartreuse with all the chinoiserie lattice works and all cut on the buyers. I'd been introduced to Nicole, who was, you know, gung-ho, and I mean, like, a real tomboy and up for it. And, and this was the, a first kind of red carpet experience where she pulled it together, the hair, the nails, the bag, everything, and um, caused quite a sensation uh, with Tom on the, on the red carpet. And some girls went high-low, like Sharon Stone wearing a Vera Wang ball gown skirt paired with a Gap shirt. That was right after I got married, and I told Vera I wanted to wear one of Phil's shirts. 
And she was like, and you know, Vera, Sharon, how am I going to get that together? Send me the goddamn shirt in the mail. And so I sent her the shirt and she turned it into a bodysuit so that we could have his initials on the thing. Cause I thought that would be really sexy, like a, like old school sexy. And then she made the wrap skirt, which I thought was very beautiful. She asked me, can you do a Duchess satin ball skirt? But it has to wrap like it's long. And I said, well, that's kind of difficult because usually sarongs are wrapped in soft fabric. And Duchess is extremely stiff. And she said, I want a Duchess satin sarong because I'm going to wear it with my husband's gap shirt. Like male versus female. I wasn't entirely sure up until the minute she wore it that we actually succeeded. The Oscar ensemble turned into a huge moment for the actress and an even bigger moment for the designer. Vera credits dressing Sharon throughout the years to catapulting her own career. She's intriguing. There's a duality to her that's, you know, both evil and innocent. And I'd love to meet her. She just said, well, if I ever go to the Oscars, I promise you I'll wear you the first time. And actually, she did. <laughs> I, I didn't even realize what that would call, you know, what that would cause. That was a part of the 90s that helped define American fashion, but also helped me define my brand very early on. And the It Girls of the decade continue to experiment on their newfound runway. Claire Danes found her favorite designer in Narciso Rodriguez. My idea of an Oscar dress was strappy and red and adult and sexy and stuff. And, and he was like, girl, you are a child. You have to know that and you have to dress with that in mind. And he really taught me a lot. I was very looked after by a few designers, I mean, that were incredibly generous. Dolce Gabbana used to dress me a lot. Fashion designer Victoria Beckham. And I remember I used to get so many clothes sent to me. I mean, as someone that loved fashion but was never in a position to be able to afford it, to all of a sudden, literally, there would be carloads full of designer clothes arriving, which was just incredible. Having the right girl wear the right dress on the red carpet became a master marketing tool for designers. So much so that some even paid the actresses to wear their clothes. So their names became more prevalent in the culture because suddenly we were realising that there was this arc of a relationship between the media, the actress herself and the fashion house. But as the it girl coupled with the it designer became the new norm, it turned the red carpet from an evening event to a royal production. Hair, makeup and stylists were now a must. The pressure was on. What was interesting was that when those girls became cover girls, let's say, and then also it was a lot of pressure on celebrities, they all had to fit into sample sizes and stuff. Author Plum Sykes again. You know, they had to be as beautiful as models and have the bodies of models and they were meant to be great actresses. It was an incredible amount of pressure, you know, and very, very difficult. But then they became fashion icons. And so many women felt the pressure to be super thin to fit the role and the dress. All the clothes for the next season, obviously, only came in a sample size, which had been worn by a model on the runway in Paris who might have been 17 years old with a ribcage the size of a pencil. 
you know, and then you give it to like a 29 year old or 35 year old actress and they're meant to fit into it. And there's like sellotape at the back and clamps at the back. And it's really tough on those girls because, you know, they couldn't be that skinny. They couldn't. People were absolutely enamoured with these women, fueled and driven by our new appetite for celebrity culture. Just a very small group of women, you know, in their 20s and early 30s were kind of running, in a way, running the New York social scene and the scene in Hollywood. They, they were kind of top of the pinnacle. And anyone who didn't fit the mould wasn't invited. Because fashion is completely ruthless like that. If you're too old and you're not cool enough and all the rest of it, you're just, I'm afraid, left out. It begs the question, if these women were considered it in fashion, then who was left out? At a time when designers were gifting actresses with clothes, Tamara Mori recounts being denied these same privileges. It comes with the territory. It is a part of your journey. You hear no more than you hear yes. And I have to say, within the fashion world, I have never heard so many no's in my life as, as a young Black actress. And there were times where, uh, well, there was an outfit. We went into a showroom, and the head designer wasn't there. A-okayed for us to wear these dresses to the NAACP Image Awards. We were so excited. And this, is, this was a serious fashion designer. Everyone was wearing him at this point. And literally two days later, nope, can't wear it. Imagine these little girls, you know, being so excited and then being told no. And then I remember seeing Carrie Russell. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, you know, Carrie Russell, she did Felicity in, in, the, same, in the same dress at, at an award show. Fashion itself historically has always gravitated around Eurocentricism when we're talking in the Western context. It has always gravitated toward Eurocentricism and this idea that whiteness is 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 at its core. Fashion historian Donald Jamal Lisby. It's, it's not a stretch to say that that was par for the course. When you're looking at, you know, that thinness and that whiteness as being the, the crux of of the fashionable ideal, and then you see this gradual acceptance of, again, to these so socialites and celebrities that were typically white or blonde, or like that was like the thing. The reality is, is we weren't embraced or supported. Actress Nia Long. Designers were not checking for a five foot two young actress in a movie called Boys in the Hood. They didn't care. That wasn't their demographic. That wasn't who they were interested in learning about. There was no diversity in that during that time. Like it was separatism and we felt it. When you see that, it it creates this further division. And it, it doesn't necessarily help, you know, those marginalized communities feel a part of a system, even though everyone actually is a part of the fashion system, as we all know. It's because during the 90s, I was that girl. Jada was that girl. Hallie was that girl. And Regina King was that girl. Black actresses were icons in black entertainment, but the rest of the entertainment and fashion industry passed them over. Today, the fashion industry has come a long way from the thin, glamorous, white celebrity paradigm that defined the 90s. But nonetheless, the concept of an it girl is still a prominent feature of our celebrity culture.
As an audience, we're all guilty too, because we like looking at pictures of young, beautiful people. We're all, we're all complicit, aren't we? And we're all, we're all addicted to beauty and style and youth. And that's just part of the human condition. The it girls and socialites who packed the front rows of fashion shows and strutted down red carpets 30 years ago laid the groundwork for the influencers of the 2010s. So fashion embraced them. They embraced fashion and it was a great kind of teamwork and it created a kind of industry because the clothes that those girls wore were the clothes that everyone wanted. People wanted to be those girls. They were like the escapist fantasy icon yeah, you don't want your children to grow up in a world where it's all about image. You don't. But but then at, at the same time, there is the fun of it and it is escapist for people. And it's it's fun to, you know, it's fun to go out and buy your new handbag or get inspired by someone's style. But what is undeniable is that a pretty girl will likely always continue to have marketing power. And even though we've made a bit of progress, as we continue, there's a need to question the who, the what and the it itself. The term it girl, it boy, and it like that, that has to be looked at as well. You know, we have to look at that term as like, who is it? You know, what is it? And who is creating that idea of it? Technology and social media has really kind of rocked the boat. The way that this influencer culture was created is really the way that has created an outlet to dismantle these conventions. In the 90s, the it girls and all that they represented, glamour, fashion, and a cool off the runway and into the real world style, took center stage in fashion and culture, and they've never really left. These days, technology is propelling us to the next iteration of it girls, and fashion and glamour are evolving too. But one thing is for certain, some girls, and boys will always have it. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Wolfs. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli-Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.